0: Sing great.
1: Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information on additional studies and resources from Day by Day. Thanks again for being with us. When we describe Jesus as being God, what does that entail? Does it only mean that God worked through the person of Christ, or does it mean something more? We'll delve into this all-important question today as Pastor Phil draws our attention to Colossians chapter 1.
0: Because the Job's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ was a created being, but that he's also Michael the Archangel. And that is untrue. Michael was a created being, a very powerful created being, but Jesus is the creator who created Michael. As we have just seen, all things were created by him in the heavenlies. So Michael was one of those very powerful angels that Jesus Christ created. But Jesus himself is not an angel, he is not a created being, and he is not a lesser emanation. You see, these people taught that, look, how do you connect with God? We got to do it through these emanations because you're evil. Why? You're physical. You can't go to God directly. You need a kind of a chain of command almost, where you can go through one of these emanations who will then, you know, pass along your requests and things up to the Holy God. And Jesus Christ, they taught, was just one of these inferior emanations. And Paul says, no way. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God in human form. He is not less than God. He is God incarnate. Whatever we need for life and godliness, Paul is basically saying here, is found in Jesus. And folks, if you come to him and abide in him, then whatever you need for life and godliness, you've been promised that he will provide it. Everything we need. Now, when Paul said in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. That could be a little misleading. and I'm going to read you what author William MacDonald said on this. First of all, he quotes Darby. He says, Darby translates verse 19 as follows. For in him, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. He said the King James Version, and the New King James as well, could make it sound as if at some point in time, The Father, and notice the words the Father are in italics, which means they're not really in the Greek. They were added by the translators to hopefully clarify the passage. Sometimes when they do that it does, sometimes they mess the whole thing up. And that's what Darby is trying to say. He translates it, for in him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. And so uh, MacDonald goes on. He says, it sounds as if at some point in time the Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in the Son. The real meaning is that the fullness of the God had always dwelt in Christ. Gnostic heretics taught that Christ was a kind of a halfway house to God, a necessary link in the chain. But there were other better links on ahead. Go on from him, they urged. In other words, you know, get past Christ. We don't need him anymore. We got this esoteric knowledge now. Go on from him, they urged, and you will reach the fullness. No, Paul answers, Christ is himself the complete fullness, end quote. Amen to that. Now, the word dwell in verse 19 is also very important. See it there? For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And that word in the Greek means much more than just to reside. The form of the verb here means to be at home permanently to be at home permanently Uh, in essence what paul is saying is that the fullness of the deity of god has taken up permanent residence in the body of jesus christ jesus christ is the god man now why is that important for us I mean, it's obviously basic to our faith, but why is that important? Why, why is Paul hitting on that? Why is the word dwell so important uh, as meaning that um, to be at home permanently? Well, again, and I don't know if it was the Gnostics who believed this, but we know that many other groups today believe, the New Age movement and others, believe that Jesus Christ was the latest reincarnation of what? The Christ spirit, right? The same spirit that has indwelt many avatars and teachers through the centuries like Muhammad and Confucius and uh, Buddha and so on. In fact, Jesus was the latest reincarnation for the present age which is the Piscean age. But there is coming another, Maitreya Buddha, who the Christ spirit will inhabit for the next age or the new age, the age of Aquarius, which is coming, they believe. And so, Jesus Christ was just a man inhabited by the Christ Spirit, as many have been before him. I love it how the Holy Spirit, knowing these arguments and these doctrines, uh, not only anticipates, he knows them, and so he puts in his word things that, you know, that we can look at and go, well, here, this proves that that's not an accurate teaching. Remember when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, He spent 40 more days with his disciples, right? Teaching them about the kingdom. They went as far as the Mount of Olives, right? And all of a sudden, then he is lifted up into heaven, right? And he disappears in the clouds. And the disciples are all sitting up looking up at the sky, you know, and see him disappear in the clouds and just keep looking up there, you know. And Finally, an angel appears and says, you know, what are you guys doing? I mean, uh, but what did the angel say? He said, this same Christ spirit will come again? No. He said, this same Christ. Jesus. Jesus is going to return, the man who was born of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, because in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead, and that is a permanent thing because he is God in human form. Folks, do you realize that right now, right now as we speak, at the right hand of the throne of God, there is a glorified man. When Jesus took on a human body, and he died and was then rose, a glorified man He remains a glorified man to this day with some of the limitations of a man in the sense that when Jesus was on the earth, he couldn't be in uh, every place at once as he had been uh, when he was God in spirit form. When he took on a body of flesh, even after that body was glorified, he has certain limitations that he, he gave up certain things because he loved us. Now, because you've got the Father and the Spirit who are all one with the Son, because the Spirit and the Father are still omnipresent. Jesus, of course, through them can be omnipresent. But technically, him himself, he took on certain limitations for us that he will bear for all eternity. In fact, we read in the scriptures how the marks of his crucifixion he will bear for all eternity. That in ages yet to come, every time we look at him, we're going to realize the depth of his love for us. These are things to really make us realize how much our savior loves us in verse 20 Paul went on to say and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross the word reconcile there in verse 20 means to bring two parties that are at odds that are at enmity with each other to bring them to a place of peace and harmony once again again verse 20 and by by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether listen things on earth on earth or things in heaven now don't misunderstand what Paul is teaching here some say that Paul is teaching universalism no he's not teaching that universal universalism is the, is the teaching that all beings including those who have rejected Jesus Christ will one day be saved Universalism basically says that universally everybody, angels, people, all sentient beings, even if they've rejected Christ someday because God is love he's gonna gather everybody up and say you crazy kids come on we're all gonna live in my kingdom together and you know and uh, I can't be mad at you guys you know and we're gonna just forget everything all this sin you know and that's wishful thinking that's not biblical truth by the way that's that's wishful thinking. But this is definitely not what Paul believed. First of all, Paul knew that fallen angels couldn't be reconciled to God, fallen angels couldn't be redeemed. They only got one shot at it. And once they blew it, once they chose to rebel against God, they remain in that fallen state for eternity. In fact, hell was not made, the Bible says, for man. Hell was made for the devil and his angels, right? He said, why do they only get one shot at this? because they stand in the presence of God and with knowledge comes responsibility. And so angels cannot be redeemed. Lucifer, some universalists believe that, you know, in the end even Lucifer gets to go to heaven. Again, wishful thinking, not biblical reality. Paul knew that and Paul also knew and believed and taught that sinners needed to believe in Jesus if they were going to be saved. That nobody gets saved by default. Nobody gets saved even if they've chosen to rebel against Christ or, and not even believe in Him. Paul knew that, you know, man has got to repent and receive Christ if they're going to be saved. And so what is Paul saying here then? What is Paul saying when he says in verse 20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, he is talking about all things that can be reconciled. All things that can be reconciled. Can angels be reconciled once they fall? No. Can human beings be reconciled if they refuse to re- repent and receive Christ? No. But everything that can be reconciled, and of course when we talk about man, all people who have received Christ, they have been reconciled. But something else happened when man blew it. The whole creation was subjected to to the curse. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 8 once, I want to read uh, verses 19 to 22. You guys can follow me along in whatever version you're reading out of, I just want to quote you this out of the New Living Translation, where Paul said, Romans 8 verse 19, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation, and of course, this is poetic language. I mean, Paul is kind of personifying the creation, right? As if it's real, as if it's a a real person, okay? But, uh, But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. What is he talking about? Well, we talked about this, I can't remember it was last week or uh, Wednesday or Sunday morning. Remember we said how that when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Not only did they fall, but the creation fell. What, what happened? Well, they set in motion certain scientific laws, okay? Some of them were called the entropy laws, in particular the second law of thermodynamics, which means at that point, things started to go from order to disorder. That's when rust and decay came into the creation. And Paul is saying, look, the creation was never intended by God to decay away. Things were never supposed to wear out. In the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth, everything is going to be perpetually new, isn't it? Behold, I make all things new. But that's not going to just be for that moment, and then they start wearing out again. It's going to be forever perpetually new. Even things like worship. People say, I don't want to... Be a Christian and go to heaven? I mean, the thought of me, you know, sitting on a cloud forever, playing a harp and, and 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 singing worship to God, that's about as boring as I can think ever think of. Well, first of all, it doesn't say that's what's gonna happen. I mean, we will sing his praises forever and ever. But unlike today, you know, some of these worship songs are so beautiful. When they first come out, I mean, oh wow, you feel like you can sing them every day for the rest of your life, right? Can you? I mean, you can sing. I mean, I've played them over and over and over again. But after a while, they get worn out, don't they? They get a little tired. And the worship is not as emoting as it used to be, right? So what happens? So somebody comes around with a new worship song that just grabs your heart. And boy, here you go again, right? Do you realize in heaven we're never going to get bored of worship? We're never going to get bored of worship. Every time we worship the Lord, it will be like the very first time. Because everything will be perpetually new. Not just our surroundings, but our worship in our hearts and so on. I mean, can you imagine an existence where nothing ever gets old? Where you're never bored? where there's no yawning, you know? You know? Not like today in church, people are looking at their watches because Pastor Phil's going a little long again. They're going to be saying, Amen, Jesus, preach it. When you just preach another million years, I want to hear you preach even more, Lord, you know? But someday the creation is going to be redeemed. It's going to be reconciled to God. It's no more going to bear the curse of sin. Sin will be eradicated from the universe. All right. We're going to live in a in a sin-free universe. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. This reconciliation. Verse 20 tells us, was made possible through the blood of his cross. Turn to Psalm 85. I'm going to show you the dilemma of the ages. You want to know the dilemma of the ages? All right, I'm going to show it to you right here. Psalm 85, verse 10. The psalmist said, mercy and truth have met together. Now, this is a prophecy of a day yet future for the psalmist, but a day that's already come and gone for us. Who live in this day. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. You say, I don't understand what you're talking about. How is this the dilemma of the ages? Let me tell you how it is. How can a merciful God, who did not want to send people to hell because he loved us, how could he not violate his truth by showing us mercy? The truth that said, In the day that you sin, you shall surely what? die how does the merciful God not send people to hell because he doesn't want to send anyone to hell and yet still still be true to his word what he already promised the soul that sins shall surely perish forever how does a righteous God have peace with his enemies those that are rebels those that have purpose to live against what he has said How could a righteous God have fellowship with unrighteous men and women? All of this was through the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God's mercy was able to be shown because his truth was satisfied. We had a substitute that died in our place. Sin had to be punished. Christ was our punishment, was our sacrifice. This allowed God to show us mercy because his righteousness had been satisfied. And therefore, because his righteousness had been satisfied, he was now at peace with us. We were still at war with him until we got saved. But at the cross, God is no longer at war with man. His righteousness has been satisfied. John said in his first epistle, chapter 2, that through the blood of Christ, uh, God has been propitiated, satisfied. And he is now opening his arms to rebellious man. And anyone who receives Christ, well, he can have that beautiful oneness and fellowship with them, but those that have refused up to this point, he is not—you know—he's not fighting with them anymore. He's inviting them to come, to be his children. In verse twenty-one, he said, "And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled." The Greek word translated "alienated"—very long Greek word. I'm not even trying to pronounce it. Okay, it's really long. Okay, it's got about 20 letters in it, all right? But it literally, and listen to this. Here's what the Greek word literally means. To be transferred to another owner. We were. When did that alienation take place, by the way? When was mankind alienated from God? In the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden. Did Adam and Eve fully understand all the ramifications of what they were doing when they ate that forbidden fruit? I don't think they did. And it wasn't important that they did because God said, don't do it. Bad stuff is going to happen, okay? You don't have to be a theologian to understand. When God says, don't do something, bad things are going to happen. You don't do it, right? But when Adam and Eve, primarily Adam, because he was the federal head of the human race, when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, yes, he fell. And, of course, Eve had fallen before him because she ate first and all of Adam's descendants were now going to be born fallen creatures. The whole creation was was thrown into chaos and, and, and all of a sudden now death and decay would be a part of God's perfect creation, something that God never intended to happen. But what I'm convinced Adam didn't realize at that point, at that instant, he was once a child of God. He was a son of God. You read how that Adam was created by God out of the dust of the earth. And when... Um, Luke traces the genealogy actually of Mary is what it is. goes back to all the way back to Adam. You know, he talked about this one, the son of this one, the son of this one, Adam, the son of God. He was a child of God. But when he sinned in the garden, ownership was transferred to the devil. No longer a child of God now, now a slave of the devil. In fact, the whole creation in a sense, was turned over to the control of the devil. He's not only the God of this world, but in a lot of ways, he is the one who has corrupted the entire creation. We know he's definitely the God of this world, though. This is his area of influence. But that was a transfer of ownership, guys. You know, when people look at this world and see the violence and the the injustice and the evil and the sickness disease the death and they look at this world and they say if God was a God of love why would he create a world like this he didn't create a world like this this is the product of man's rebellion and it continues to grow worse every day because man's rebellion continues to grow worse every day it's going to culminate in the antichrist coming When he's going to convince the entire world that they can be like God. The very thing that man bought into that caused him to fall in the first place is going to be the ultimate lie the Antichrist is going to bring upon the human race in the end. That man can be God. And when Jesus Christ returns, the whole planet, well, I shouldn't say the whole planet, there are going to be those that are redeemed and hiding from the Antichrist. When Jesus Christ comes back, most of the people of this world having bought into that lie that they are themselves God, are gonna stand and do battle with the one who comes riding on that white horse to establish his kingdom. And you can read Psalm two. Is God scared? Oh boy, what are we gonna do? Look at this. They're all gathered. Boy, they're look at the armies. Psalm two, he who sits in the heavens shall what? Laugh. laugh. In fact, it's a mocking laugh, the Hebrew says. You know, Gabriel, get a load of this. Look what the look at these people. <laughs> okay. Is this a joke or what? That man actually gathers to go to war against God thinking he can win. Amazing to me. Man deceived. But anyways, once we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were then reconciled back to God and are no longer the enemies of God, but now we are his dear children. But guys, I want you just to know this. The difference between a believer and a non-believer isn't merely forgiveness. It is a complete change of status. A complete change of status. Paul said in verse one, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1 of Colossians, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We were born into, a, into the kingdom of death and darkness. The devil was the, the king. Once we received Christ, we were reconciled. We were no longer alienated. We were transferred back as the property of God now, as the children of God, into the kingdom of light and love. It's amazing. And Paul said in verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, and by the way, when uh, this transfer of ownership took place from God to Satan, it affected us both in mind and behavior. In fact, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's why the God of this world is trying to get control of our thinking all the time because if he can control the way we think, he can control the way we live. That's why spiritual warfare at its core is a battle for control of the mind. I mean, isn't that interesting as you look around and see the things that the devil has a stranglehold on, the media, right? We're talking about movies and music and, and all kinds of things, all this media. What's it designed to do? Is it, is it godly, most of it? Very ungodly. Because it's controlled by the God of this world, the prince of the power of the what? Air. We, would we be wrong to say airwaves would be also included in that? He is the prince of the power of the airwaves, and he has designed what goes out on those airwaves to mess with our thinking, to, to cause us to be brainwashed, to think the way he wants us to think, because if he can get us to think the way he wants us to think, he can get us to live the way he wants us to live. That's why when you get saved, you've got to unbrainwash yourself. And what does Paul say to do in Romans 12, verse 2? He said, don't be conformed any longer into this world's way of thinking, it be transformed by the what? Renewing Renewing of your mind. That's why it's so important to get your mind in the Word of God. Because as you saturate your mind with God's Word, with His way of thinking, it begins to reprogram you, and you begin to live a different life for the Lord. Very important. But he said in verse 21, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. It was not by his life, but by his death and ultimately his resurrection that Jesus reconciled us and secured our salvation. The expression, the body of his flesh, simply means, and this book is loaded with doctrine. I mean, even little statements you got to look at. The expression, the body of his flesh, simply means that the Lord Jesus Christ affected reconciliation by dying on the cross, and listen, a real human flesh and bone body. Not as a spirit being as the Gnostics claimed him to be.
1: You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message as well as many other studies can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for being with us, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.